From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Bats have been in the news in recent years in connection to deadly epidemics, including Ebola and more recently COVID-19. Yet scientists are discovering evidence that the small flying mammals may hold a key to longer and healthier lives for humans. While bats can carry a wide variety of dangerous pathogens, for some reason they don't get sick from them. Nova PBS's upcoming episode, Bat Superpowers, takes viewers from caves in Thailand and Texas to research labs around the world to meet the scientists who are working to decode the superpowers of the bat. The benefits of bats might not be commonly understood. They do consume huge quantities of insects like mosquitoes and other major agricultural crop pests. Several species that are found here in Florida sometimes play important roles in reducing crop damage. Bats are also pollinators and seed dispersers. On today's show, we're going to learn about some of the cutting-edge science around bats and demystify some common myths about them. We'll also explore southwest Florida's bat populations and what you should do if you happen upon an injured or distressed bat. First up, we're joined by the producer of the new Nova episode. Sally Blake is producer of the PBS Nova episode Bat Superpowers, which premieres next Wednesday, September 15th at 9 p.m. on WGCU-TV. Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. We are talking about bats on today's show. We'd like to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook to weigh in and engage with other listeners. Just find the WGCU Public Media Facebook page or join us on Twitter. We're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So before you set out to produce this episode... Did you have any idea bats were as, as fascinating as what is uncovered in this episode? Because I learned a lot of new stuff that is just fascinating. I had absolutely no idea. In fact, I think I was pretty much like a lot of people. I kind of thought bats were super creepy. And I had, uh, you know, only one experience in my life with a bat. And it wasn't a particularly good one. Uh, and the story had stopped there. And then we actually, the beginning of this whole story started with Emma Teeling, who heads up uh, the Bat 1K Consortium project, which is featured in the film. And she's based in Dublin. And it was actually just before the whole COVID thing broke out. And uh, we uh, were learning about her research uh, with the bats and they were sequencing the genome of, um, well, their goal anyway, is to sequence the genome of all 1400 species of bats. And they've done about six. And all of the amazing discoveries that that was leading them to. And so we started to speak with Dr. Teeling about possibly making uh, a film with her about bats and, and these incredible superpowers that they were already onto. And then COVID hit. And all of a sudden bats were public enemy number one because it's still, they're still most likely the cause, um, the cause, the origins, let's say, of the coronavirus, which then mutated um, and infected humans. And that's, of course, because bats, they harbor thousands of viruses and all of the biggies that we know, like Ebola and SARS, uh, originated with bats. And the question then was, well, how come bats don't get sick themselves from these same viruses? You know, what makes them so resistant? And that's exactly what Emma Teeling was uh, researching and what a number of different researchers were already looking at. And so all of a sudden it all came together and it became uh, actually a much more urgent question. 
And it was fascinating to me that the line of inquiry goes down the road of why bats, which are like the mammalian world's best flyers, what the nexus is between that and why they don't get viruses. Now, that seems almost impossible to imagine without explaining it. And I know we don't, we don't have time to go into all those details, but what were you thinking as you watched that sort of connection present itself? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting hypothesis. It's got a lot of um, basis to it. And basically, what one of the findings of, of Dr. Teeling and their group was that when bats evolved about 55 million years ago, it's around that time as well that they started to see the mutation of other genes that are involved in their immune system. So it's what's the connection? What is, is it in fact because they're the only mammal that flies that they also had ha- either as a just a a byproduct of that developed these incredibly resistant immune systems, or was it because of? I don't think we know all the answers yet, but uh, it's been leading some, to some really interesting findings, including um, the uh, the work by Dr. Lim Fa Wang in Singapore, where they've they found that actually, you know, when bats when they fly, their metabolism you know, really, really speeds up. And of course, that should cause a lot of inflammation and it causes toxic uh, byproducts that then would produce in humans, they produce um, an inflammatory reaction. Well, in bats, it doesn't. And they, you know, if you watch the film, you'll see the whole experiment that proves this. And so in a way it's like, well, in order to cope with all these toxic byproducts, what, as they fly, you know, bats had to adapt ways to tamper down this inflammatory response, this this immune system response. And it's that tampering down that sort of, it's always in a perfect equilibrium that they have also been able to live in a perfect equilibrium with all the viruses that they carry. And that's something that potentially could have an application to humans. Yeah, it certainly raises the question um, because also it appears from from what I've watched in this episode that some bat species sort of effectively don't age. Like you can pick up a specimen of one and not be able to tell without looking at certain factors, whether it's 20 years old or two years old. And that was very new to me, too. Yeah, that's right. It's a it's incredible. Um, There's this rule in biology which says that the smaller the species is. Uh, the shorter their lifespan. So a mice wouldn't, mouse wouldn't live very long, but an elephant would live much longer. Um, but with bats, that's not true. They're one of the few exceptions to that rule. And so you have these bats that are um, that live disproportionately long lives. I think the oldest is around forty years old. But pet, you know, according to their size, it's it's really quite quite a lot. And one of the fascinating findings from Emma Teeling and her group was that they've traced the genes that are responsible for that. And also they observed that within their cells, there's something called a telomere and telomeres protect the ends of your chromosomes. And as we age, our telomeres get shorter and it affects cell health and death. And, you know, as we lose cells, we get older. And with bats in some species, the telomeres do not get shorter and they have developed a mechanism for keeping them long. 
So uh, again, that is something potentially that could have an application to humans. So the irony that's sort of brought forth in this episode is that the source of many of the viruses that cause sickness in humans, including likely the coronavirus pandemic, could potentially be the source for um, you know, treatments for humans to help us live longer and without infections as often or something along those lines. It's definitely bats are our friend and we need to study them closer because I think they do hold some secrets to our own potential long life and healthy life. Yes. One thing I want to bring up before I let you go um, is bats. Let me get this right. Bats can fly 100 miles an hour. Some bats can fly about 100 miles an hour horizontally, meaning they're flying under their own power. They're not diving toward the earth. Whereas like a, an eagle, who, which we think of as a very fast flyer, I looked it up. They can only fly about 30 miles an hour. So bats, the mammal bat that flies is basically the fastest flying animal on the planet. I had no idea. It, it is. It is. They actually, and there's a scene in the film where we um, follow scientists who, who discovered that they recorded um, the speed of the Mexican free-tailed bat at Frio Cave in Texas. And they clocked 100 miles an hour. So it's really incredible. They didn't even believe it when they did it, but and that true. And that researcher, he was so happy up in his airplane with his little radio telemetry device. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, well, that's almost all the time we have for this part of the show. But I just wanted to ask, do you have a different um, opinion of bats now? Are they as creepy to you as before? Or do you have a more sense of you know, curiosity about them? I absolutely love bats now. And one of the things that I love making this film was um, discovering all the different shapes, sizes, and forms that bats take. There's 1,400 species in there. There's quite a difference uh, between one and the other. So the more you learn about bats, the, the more you love them. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for this part of the show. But I want to thank my guest, Sally Blake, is producer of the PBS Nova episode Bat Superpowers, which premieres next Wednesday, September 15th at 9 here on WGCU-TV. Sally, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about bats. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. We're going to pivot now to bats here in our part of Florida. I spoke last week with David Outerbridge. He's director of the UF-IFAS Extension Office in Lee County. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. Do you tend to see bats around your home or when you're out in the wild? We'd love for you to share your bat stories and photos with us um, on our WGCU social media. Just find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So there are 13 native species of bat, which is in, here in Florida, which I understand. What are the ones that we're going to mm-hmm. tend to see here in southwest Florida? Well, there's probably about nine bats that we would see in this part of Florida. Um, the eastern red bats, more northern, so is the hoary bat and um, the gray bat. And there's also um, a bat that is um, only found in the Florida Keys. But um, about nine of the other species we would see in this area. And one of particular interest is, of course, the endangered um, Florida bonneted bat. Um, and that is an endangered species that is only found, found in Florida and in the southwest of Florida. And there's recently been by the FWC um, a whole uh, region of Charlotte County and parts of Lee County that have been kind of cordoned off to protect that species. What does a bonneted bat look like, just to describe it? 
Well, it's it's our largest largest bat species in Florida, so it's quite large. Um, they also have um, a very unique um, kind of uh, bonnet on their head, which is why they're called a bonneted bat. Um, and kind of uh, they're very. It's it's difficult to describe bats because we always see them at night. Um, but if if you found one um, during the daytime, it would most likely be kind of on, in a tree or under the eave of a house, and they're quite solitary in how they roost. Um, so that would be one way of identifying of where it is. Um, the other way is you know the, the the large face structure and kind of ears of the bonneted bat are quite distinct. Understood. I have a, a fairly large yard, and at night. Basically every night, if I go out at the right time, I see bats flying around. Is there any way to tell, you know, based on like where I live in southwest Florida or what time of year it is, which kind of bats those might likely be? I mean, there are some indications with size. You know, the bonneted bat is the largest bat we have in Florida, um, and you can tell some differences um, between their habitat, where, they, where they're coming out of. Um, you know, there's foliage, bats that live in foliage, bats that live in structures, bats that live in palms and, and caves, and also um, kind of how well clustered they are. To identify the bats themselves in the in the evening is going to be quite tricky unless you have a bat very close by and you can catch it. <laughs> um, they look very similar. There's a few that have very defining characteristics, but it's not always easy. Um, the best way is to figure out through behavior. Um, most of the bats in Florida, I think all of the bats in Florida are micro bats. So they all kind of navigate through echolocation and catch their food. They're, most of them are, are insectivores also. In Florida, are they all insectivores or are some not? I, I was trying to think of bats that aren't, and I'm thinking of like the vampire bat must not be because it does eat blood. But, you know, are most bats insectivores? Yes, um, yes most bats are insectivores. Um, the micro bats predominantly are. The, the mega bats, which are the bats that like uh, flying foxes, um, uh, feed on fruit, um, and also are hugely important pollinators. How good are bats at eating mosquitoes? Because I don't really have a mosquito problem around my home, and I always thought maybe the bats were a, a reason for that. Definitely. Um, you know, there's been studies at UF um, to observe, and um, in Georgia, um, to observe bats, and they are key to actually protecting some um, insects that prey on crops. Um, so they, they are really important for integrated pest management and they, you know, the added benefit of having them around your home is that it's part of your integrated pest management of your home. So it can reduce the amount of um, insects in and around your home. And they're also seed dispersers, they're pollinators, they're fertilizers on mm -hmm. some level. Can you just talk about like those other roles they play in the ecosystem? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the, the bats that feed on fruits, um, you know, they're really important for bananas, avocados, mangoes, um, and, you know, help pollinate those plants. Um, as far as seed dispersers, you know, they, get, they, they, they travel very far and then they're airborne. They're the only flying mammals. So they kind of transport seeds over, over fairly long distances um, because they're airborne. And I also mentioned fertilizers. So their guano is yes. is um, is a potent fertilizer, I think, right? Yes. Well, it is it is harvested many places in the world as a fertilizer, and it is a very good fertilizer. One thing I want to I want to harken back to the Nova episode. Were you aware of the fact mm -hmm. that bats were such fast flyers? Like literally, the fastest animal on the planet that flies on its own power is a bat. And I would have never um, guessed I, that. 
You know what? There, I, I was aware of that before I saw that episode, and they, you know, they're incredibly efficient. They don't fly like birds do um, because of the structure of their wings. Um, they're also really good, as you saw in that episode, about keeping themselves cool um, because of the way that they fly. But they, because of the way that they fly, they're good at cooling themselves, but they're also really efficient because they have more bones in their, in their wings than birds do. Um, so they're actually very adept flyers. Hmm. Yeah, and, um, and the speeds are the speeds are incredible for something that small to travel at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, it was mind-boggling to me. And I looked up um, how fast I wanted for context, like how fast could a bald eagle fly? You know, not diving at the earth, yeah. and it's like a third as yeah. fast as a bat. I couldn't believe that. Yeah, well, a lot more drag. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. Um, and bats are echolocators, which I think most people probably understand. But you can just explain it, you know, for for the kids in the car that don't know what we're talking about. So bats um, use, well, their larynx, so in their throat, to send out a signal that bounces off and paints a picture of the world around them. So they're almost seeing, it's it's pretty incredible because they're almost seeing the world in the past and they have to adapt to it. And they have these receptors that in their brain kind of create a picture of the world around them based on the way that the sound changes from when it touches something outside of them and comes back into into their brain. Um, so they're pretty phenomenal, and they can actually sense, you know, their prey that way as well in the under undergrowth, um, in the air, and and they're very good at um, catching, you know, insects as they move through the air. Are they actually blind, or are they just sort of hard of seeing? They are most, yeah, they are blind. I mean, it, but in all intents and purposes, they are blind, um, and they use echolocation as their mode of. Um, interacting with the world. And, you know, you could call it seeing. Their brains use sound to see. Why do they hang upside down? Now, bats hang upside down um, due to the fact that how they've evolved. Um, you know, their, their forelimbs um, have evolved to become wings. Um, and their rear limbs are actually, the knees are turned backwards and they can hang on upside down. Um, so they use that kind of in, in reverse and it kind of locks them in position. And also they're not great at um, taking off from the ground. So they're starting um, by hanging upside down and, and utilizing gravity to take off. It, it works very well for them. Um, also, they keep away from their predators if they're hanging upside down in a high location as well. What are some common misperceptions people have about bats? Um, you know, is it true that you should be careful around them because of rabies? Look, um, no. I mean, there's less than 1% of bats have rabies um, or can transmit it. And there's any, any wild animal can has the potential for getting rabies. Normally, with any interactions with wildlife, bats included, it's usually human-caused. Um, usually our development and our society pushes into more natural environments, and that puts us into closer contact with wildlife, um, which has the potential for us to interact with wildlife more easily. So that's, that's kind of what it is. The bats are pretty amazing in the way that their immune systems are resistant to so many things. That's phenomenal. Um, you know, and they think that they de- that developed along with the ability to fly. So essentially, you know, when bats learn to fly, they, you know, they had to increase metabolism because they have to flap their wings so much and have to maintain flight, and that can shed DNA. Um, and if, and 
what their immune system did in response to that. They think this is kind of where the research is, is that the immune system uh, responded to that by cutting down the ability of a bat or the, how the immune system responds to inflammation. So they have reduced inflammation, which m- makes them less susceptible to infection. Uh, which is what the Nova episode goes into really good detail on. Um, In terms of people here in Southwest Florida, if you have a bat, like if you come home and there's a bat in your home, or if you find bats Mm -hmm. living in your attic, what should you do? Well, okay. If bats are living in your attic, they're eating a lot of insects around your home, maybe putting up a bat box outside your house and hoping they roost there and sealing up any entrances to your attic if it, if it bothers you, um, if you're worried about, you know, the guano or any, any you know, anything like that, um, you know, definitely, you know, call somebody that is an expert in, in removal of bats um, specifically so that they can come in and safely remove the bats so that the, the bats aren't harmed. Um, and, you know, definitely, you know, PPE whenever you come into contact with any wild animal, you know, personal protective. And I think we're all very familiar with that now with COVID um, because, you know, you don't want to catch anything, but you also don't want to harm the the bat either. Um, We're about out of time. So last question, is there anything people can do to attract bats to their yard? You mentioned building a bat box. Is that the primary way or are there other, are there certain kind of plants or something like that? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different plants that you can you can have that uh, attract bats, but bat box is the best way. Somewhere somewhere where they can roost, and that way they will be living on your on your property and use that as a base of kind of operations for when they do their nighttime flying and and hopefully eat all of the insects in your yard first. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for this part of the show, but I want to thank my guest. Um, David Atterbridge is the director of the UF IFAS Extension Office in Lee County. David, thank you so much for clearing up some common bat misconceptions and educating us about Florida's bats. Terrific. Thanks so much for having me on, and I hope, um, I hope it was helpful. We're going to round out today's show with a conversation producer Tara Callaghan had with a volunteer at the Clinic for the Rehabilitation of Wildlife, or CROW, out on Sanibel Island. Yvette, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So first things first, do you currently have any bat patients at Crow right now? I think currently there are not any babies, although I'm not, I haven't volunteered there this week, so I have um, yet to see if there are any currently. Okay, and at Crow, what types of bats do you typically see at Crow most often? The most common bats that are seen at Crow would probably be the Brazilian free-tailed bat, um, that's probably the most popular uh, patient that we do get in terms of bats, and it's not uncommon to sometimes see big brown bats and the northern yellows as well. Is there something that these bats are typically being treated for, or does it vary? Uh, normally, if bats are coming in, it might be during um, the bat maternity season here in Florida, which starts usually uh, April 15th. So around um, mid-April, mid-August is um, when babies are going to be around, and that might be the time when we might see a mother with babies uh, attached to her, and she maybe got, you know, displaced um, traveling around and is found on the floor, on the ground, and is having a difficult time um, getting lift again with the baby. So around that time is when we'll see some patients, and as well as our colder months, which would be December, January, and February, if they're kind of cold-stunned. Um, they'll come into the clinic for that reason. And, you know, I, I've, I've read if bats are found on the ground, that's typically a bad sign. 
Um, usually, yeah. I mean, if they're on the ground, they do have a harder time getting lift. So usually that's when people will try and pay, you know, they'll pay more attention to them because they might be vocalizing on the ground. But um, it's never recommended to touch a bat, of course. But, you know, contacting your local rehabber to see if they can have a volunteer go out there that is rabies vaccinated to try and help that bat just get on the, on a palm or on the on a palm tree to try and, you know, just reestablish itself. So if a, someone finds a bat that's injured or in distress, what should they do and how does Crow help? So it's very important to know that you should never um, hold or touch a bat um, in general with your bare hands or I guess, yeah, ever. And it's really important to contact your local rehabilitator. If you Google and look for rehab centers near your area, um, hopefully someone can can give you advice. And usually it would be to stay away and that they would hopefully send a volunteer out to try and, and assist that bat. Once Crow has the bats, is there any sort of process that goes through specifically with bat patients that come into Crow? So when bats come into Crow, they go through the same process that every patient goes through, which is, you know, triage. So once the the patient is brought into the exam room, usually um, the veterinarian and someone that assists the veterinarian will get hands on the bat with proper um, um, gloves to be able to handle the patient. And they'll just do a physical exam, heart rate, and make sure that the patient is nice and warm if they came in cold. Um, and then if meds are necessary, those would be given um, a little bit later. We just usually try and give the patient a little bit of time to you know, get back to being warm if they're not. Um, and then those meds can be administered later. And then we do also attempt to feed. But all of that happens after the patient is stabilized, of course. Is there anything that someone definitely, other than touching and handling a bat, should not do if they find a bat roosting on their property or on their home? It's really important to just not um, try and, you know, relocate or try to uh, kind of taunt the bats. I, they do sometimes have a, a bad reputation, which I think it's, it's that's why it's really important for us to kind of um, promote speaking about bats and educating everybody. Because if they're in urban areas, they are a target um, to being approached because their people are afraid of them at times. So I think just spreading positive news about bats, how important they are and things like that will help to change that mentality. We only have a couple questions left because we are almost about uh, out of time here. What uh, if people wanted to see bats and view them safely? Is there somewhere in Southwest Florida that you suggest? Honestly, sometimes even in your own neighborhood, there's been times where I'm just taking a nice walk at night and you can hear them vocalizing, echolocating and things like that. So honestly, even in your own neighborhood, you might be able to to hear bats um, running around and flying around that area. Thank you so much for your time, Yvette. I really appreciate it. Yvette Carrasco is a naturalist and current Crow volunteer, a certified wildlife rehabilitator, and a former wildlife rehabilitator at Crow. Thank you again, Yvette, for your time. Thank you. Thanks also to our earlier guests, Sally Blake, producer of the PBS Nova episode Bat Superpowers that premieres next Wednesday evening on WGCU-TV, and David Outerbridge, director of the UF IFAS Extension Office in Lee County. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Tara Calligan. Our director is Richard Chinqui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is 
NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punta Gorda, and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island, a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University.